morning, church. Good morning, everybody that's watching online. And uh, we want to welcome you this morning. Go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 16. And uh, as you're turning there, let me kind of tell you where we've been over the last few weeks. We are, we are in this series called This Is My Story. And we're really just looking at instances in Scripture where uh, men and women experience the, the saving grace of God, the life-transforming saving uh, grace of God. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so what the Apostle Paul is talking about is the gospel is really God's power to seek and to save that which is lost. And so when you think about the work of conversion, the work of saving, uh, sometimes what you see is that work of conversion is a, is a work uh, is a, a work of progress or process over time. You know, if you think about the story of how you came to faith in Christ, many of you in this room, many of you watching online would, would testify to the working of God's grace in your conversion that it took time. It was a process. You had questions, you had struggles. And so you had an, an awakening, but that awakening took time. Now, other times, the, the work of conversion, that work of God's grace in our hearts occurs instantaneously and decisively. And as I think about my story of coming to faith in Christ as a middle schooler, not growing up in a Christian family, not, not growing up in a family that had faith, I, I read a book that explained the gospel as, an, as, a, as a middle schooler. And that day, I, I knew Jesus was in the room with me that day. And I knew that I was a sinner. And I knew that I was lost. And then when I asked for God to come into my life to forgive me of my sins, it was as if this huge weight had been taken off my shoulders. I knew instantly that I was, that I was a child of God. And so God works instantaneously sometimes. He, he works decisively. There's a story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a preacher during the 1800s. He preached in London, England. He's considered one of the greatest preachers in all of church history. His nickname is called, um, is the Prince of Preachers. And so he became, uh, he became a Christian at a young age and began preaching as a teenager. And church, thousands of people came to hear him preach. He preached for many, many years at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London and thousands of people would come in and pack that place out to hear him preach. And this was before, this was before the birth of the mega church. This is in the 1800s. And so it's said that uh, one day when Charles Spurgeon was, he was scheduled to be preaching at the Crystal Palace in London, downtown London, which is this huge venue. He went a couple of days early to just kind of test the acoustics in the place. And so it was an empty, empty auditorium. And he stood up in front of the empty seats and he just shared a Bible verse. He just recited, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And there just happened to be a worker in one of the back rooms who heard his towering voice. And instantly came under conviction through the power of the Holy Spirit. And made his way to Spurgeon and committed his life to Christ just like that. Now you ask the question, what in the world is that? That is the power of God to save and to seek out the lost. That's what it is. And so, so today we're going to look at three instances of that very thing where God works decisively and, in, and almost instantaneously 
in the scripture. We're going to see this in Acts chapter 16. We're going to see three different people coming to faith in Christ through three different conversations that the apostle Paul had them. So what we're going to do is we're going to read uh, chapter 16 verses 13 through 34 and uh, I'm going to invite you if you're willing and able would you please stand as we read the word of God together beginning at verse 13. And so Luke records this, and on the Sabbath day, we went inside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Verse 16. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul And us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to accept or practice. And the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into the prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, after midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself or we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night, and he washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and, his, and all of his family. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. What an amazing 
series of events. Now, let me, let me just highlight this for you. Uh, as I've been studying this passage this week, one of the things that you might notice about what we just read is that it really is kind of a truncated version of what actually happened. So Luke is just kind of hitting us with the highlights. He's not going into, you know, graphic detail of, of everything that had happened. And he's, he's really just kind of pushing everything together uh, in a brief way because, because he's got a lot to cover in, in the book of Acts. And so what he does is he, is he takes this, these conversion stories, if you will, and, and, it's, and it's this conversion story of Lydia, who is a, a professional businesswoman, and then a slave girl, and then a Philippian jailer. Their conversions... And he sets them back to back to back in this section of scripture. And uh, it's a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of the work and the grace of God in converting someone uh, to Christ. It's, it's absolutely uh, beautiful and, and breathtaking. And what I want us to do is kind of walk through this verse by verse. But here's the other thing, and I've, I've mentioned this before in our, in our Go Together series. But what's amazing about these three is, the, is really just how different they are. What you have is you have Lydia, who is a professional businesswoman. You have a slave girl and then a Philippian jailer who couldn't be more distinct. And yet all three of them believe the same gospel and are, are baptized in the, in, in the same new church that's going to be founded. They are now members of, of this Philippian church that that has just been born. And it's pretty amazing when you think about how different they are and now they're brothers and sisters in Christ. So what I want us to do is just kind of walk through this verse by verse. So let's just, let's just kind of get our bearings a little bit and then, and then I, I think we'll see three takeaways for us this morning. So go back to verse 13 and let's just kind of walk through this uh, together. So Luke says, on the Sabbath day when they went outside the gate to the riverside, where we suppose there was a place of prayer. Now, normally when Paul would go into a city, he would go to the synagogue. He would always usually start in the synagogue, but there were, apparently were not enough Jews in the city of Philippi for a synagogue to be there. So he went to a place where that he probably heard from someone else, this is a place of prayer. And so he finds a small group of women there and, and uh, he begins to speak to them. And so uh, so he says, we sat down, we spoke to the women who had come together. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, what we can ascertain just from that is that she was very successful. She was very well respected in her community. She wealthy, uh, as, we'll see, as we'll see in just a few minutes why. Uh, she's wealthy, she's driven, she's successful, she's probably well-known in the city of Philippi, and she was a worshiper of God. And what we see here, and we don't know the whole details about this, but she commits her life to Christ. And how does she do that? Well, probably Paul did an evangelistic Bible study with her. She's, she's there praying with some other Jewish women, and he's probably explaining to her the Old Testament scriptures, how they point to Christ. And then he tells her about the coming of Christ and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So she commits her life to Christ. And so, uh, so it's, it's amazing how, what happens to her. But I want you to notice verse 14 because Luke highlights this for us. He says this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. 
So the emphasis here is not on what Lydia does. The emphasis is really on what God does in her life. It is God who opens up her heart to pay attention to what the Apostle Paul says. And that phrase, pay attention, literally means in Greek to crave, to earnestly desire what they were saying. And so he's able to lead her to Christ. And notice Luke says that she was baptized. After she was baptized, her her, and her household as well. So she influences her entire family to, to be baptized and to believe in Jesus as well. And, he, and she says to Paul, if you've judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so she prevailed upon us. So this indicates that she had a large house. So she was very successful. She invited, she invited Paul and Silas back to them. And so this was probably the meeting place uh, for the, the church in Philippi. So that's the first conversation with Lydia. And, um, and it's a beautiful thing. When you just look at what we just read, God was working in Lydia's heart long before Paul got there. And, and, and Paul, by the grace of God, was able to just pick that fruit, just lead her to Christ right there and then, and then baptize her. Well, it's a beautiful thing. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. All right. Now, let's look, at, let's look at a second conversation. This is with a slave girl. We'll pick up in verse 16. So, he's, so Luke writes this. So as we were going to the place of prayer. So this is probably another day. They're heading right back to that place the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she's a slave and she is demon possessed. And not only is she possessed by demons, she's possessed by evil men who are abusing her, who have her enslaved and are basically pimping her out. And she has a gift through the demonic spirits of clairvoyance and fortune telling. So much so that they can make money off of, off of this gift. So this is the situation that, that she is in. And so, um, so it says in verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, what she does is she basically follows Paul and Silas wherever they go because basically wherever Paul went, he attracted a crowd. And so she's following them and she wants to be seen as a part of their group because that's just gonna bring her more business. So if she can kind of echo what they're saying, then people will think, okay, she's with him or with them. So that's, that's what she's doing. And what I've noticed is, you know, over years of being in ministry, is just the reality that a lot of times unbelievers are, you know, are attracted to the gospel and at the same time antagonized by it. So you see both things happening in her. Usually someone who is oppressed, someone who's in some kind of captivity, there's something about the gospel of Jesus that attracts them to it, which I think was the situation of this slave girl. But there's also this, mistrust, kind of seething anger that kind of comes out. And I think that's what's happening here. She's echoing what they say, but as we'll later see, she's also hindering their ministry. And so Luke tells us in verse 18, this she kept doing for many days. So she's following them around. Now notice what it says next. And this, I love this. This is, this is so cool. Luke records, Paul 
having become greatly annoyed. Now, I love that phrase, church, because listen to me. This is how you know the scripture is true. Because, because Luke is writing this, he, the Bible just doesn't pull any punches, okay? He is telling us that, that Paul is greatly annoyed by what she, what she is doing and her actions towards them. Now, if Luke is trying to make the apostles look good, he's not going to write that. You know what I'm saying? He, he, you know, if he's just making this up, he's going to say, you know, the, uh, the apostle Paul just looked at her tenderly and gently and just kind of stroked her hair and said, dear daughter of Eve, don't you know who you are? You know, you know he, he, that he would write something like that. But no, what does he say? Paul's annoyed by her. He is irritated by what by what she's doing. And so, and so what he does is he turned to her and said to the spirit, he said to the demonic spirit in her, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, that is a, a, just a, a beautiful picture of, of salvation. So Paul speaks to her, she gets saved. Paul speaks the power of God in her life so that that demonic spirit has to submit to the authority of God and then, and then leave her. And, uh, and so pretty amazing, pretty breathtaking when you kind of consider the ramifications of that. And again, Luke doesn't give us all the details, but I think we, I think we can kind of fill in the gaps a little bit. So what happens is, and we won't walk through this part of it, but the owners get ticked off now. Do you know why they get ticked off? Because she no longer has that gift, that, that fortune-telling gift. They have lost an income stream because of, of her salvation, of her commitment to Christ. And so they go to the magistrates of the city, and they basically start a mini-riot right there. And they, they turn the crowd against Paul and Silas. And so they began beating them. Uh, they beat them with rods. And uh, they are arrested by the magistrates and thrown into the inner prison, Luke tells us. So, um, so the inner prison was just basically the bottom of the prison, the basement, where all the, all the stuff flowed down. You guys know what I'm saying? All the, all the fecal matter and excrement flowed down, all the rats, everything. It was dank, it was damp, it was dark there. It was the worst part of the prison. And so they are shackled against the wall. They're backs have been beaten with rods and they are at uh, they are in the inner prison and uh, and so that sets up conversation number three with the Philippian jailer now skip down to verse 25 and let's walk through this this is this is absolutely this is absolutely amazing so about midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them okay now Church, get, I want you to get the picture of this. They're in shackles. Their backs are hamburger meat. Bloody, open wounds. They're in shackles. They're in the, the dankest part of the prison. Uh, nothing good down there. And what are they doing? They are praising God. They are praying together, worshiping God, praising God, singing hymns to God. And the entire prison is hearing them. The entire prison, prison is listening to them. And so this is absolutely significant for this, but we'll come back to that later. And then, and then suddenly, Luke tells us, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. So an earthquake comes upon them, and this is not unlike Acts 12, where Peter is in a prison and an earthquake hits there. 
immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So all the prisoners had been released from their chains. The doors are down. And so verse 27, when the jailer woke up, he saw that the prison doors were open and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. So they had a simple rule for jailers. Um, If you lose a prisoner, then you die, which would have been great motivation not to lose a prisoner. So he knows that already going in. He's already making an assumption that there is a mass exodus out of this out of this prison. So look at what, it, look at what he says in verse 28. Um, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Now let's just kind of camp on that for a little bit. So I don't, we don't really know how Paul knew that this jailer was about to kill himself. He doesn't, we don't have that information, but Paul knew it instantly. He's probably taking a sword and aiming it at himself. We don't really know. Um, And so what we do know is this, is Paul says, don't do it. Don't harm yourself. Now, my question to this is, why doesn't Paul just run? Why is it, why didn't he just take the quickest exit out and get out of that jail? I mean, that's what I would have done. Would you have done that? Can I get an amen to that? Maybe? Yeah, all right. So, so the reason why I think he doesn't run is because number one, he knows he's innocent. He has nothing to run from. Number two, the walls are down and the chains are off. And I think what the apostle Paul is thinking is this is an act of God. It's an earthquake. It's an act of God. And so this is just, you know, this had just happened in, in a few chapters over to Peter. Paul knew about what happened to Peter. And so, so the reason why he doesn't run is because he knows that God is working. Paul recognizes that his prayer to God is, God, use me to convert this city. Use me to convert this city. And if you want to put me in prison, if you want me to suffer in prison in order to be a witness to this jailer, then I will do it. I will do it gladly. That's what the Apostle Paul is thinking. This was a price that he was willing to pay. So he has nowhere to go. He's concerned about the salvation of the jailer. He's dialed in to that. Look at verse 29. So the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do? What must I do to be saved? Now church, The reality is this, there's nothing you can do to be saved because it's already been done for you. And that is basically what the Apostle Paul explains, that salvation comes to those who believe in the Lord Jesus, as Paul says, and you will be saved. In other words, that the gospel is so simple uh, and yet so powerfully profound, it is this, that my sin and your sin separates us from God. And so we have missed the mark. And, he, and, and to make things even more real, we've not only missed the mark, but we've been born missing the mark. That we were born in sin. We were born in the sin of Adam and Eve. That their sinful nature was passed on to us. And so we were born separated from God, alienated from God. And, and, and not only just alienated from God, but enemies of God. And so there's nothing we can do to really save ourselves. And so God in his love knows that. 
and he sends his son Jesus to live the life that we were supposed to live. And he dies the death, the condemnation, death that we were supposed to die. And Jesus rises on the third day. And so the heart of the gospel of Jesus is this. Believe in Jesus' work for you in his living and in his death and in his rising and you'll be saved. That Jesus taking our place on the cross covers our sin and reconciles us to God by grace through faith. That's basically what the Apostle Paul explains. Now, so, so the Philippian jailer gets this and uh, we see this in verse, 20, verse 31. He says, um, you know, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. So this was a continuing conversation that happened. And he, he explains the, the details of the gospel and he's even sharing it with the house uh, and the entire house. And I love this because this is the mark of true conversion, the mark of real change in someone's life. Uh, and he took them, this is the jailer took them that same hour of the night and he washed their wounds. Probably some of the wounds that the jailer himself inflicted on them. But you see this huge change. He washed their wounds. He was baptized at once. He and his entire family, verse 34, and he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his household that they had believed in God. Now that, that is amazing. I mean, when you think about that God just caused an earthquake uh, to get the Philippian jailer's attention, um, it just shows you uh, just the amazing love for God and how God can seek and save the lost instantaneously. So, so here's my question. Why would Luke put this in, the, in chapter 16 like that? Just back to back to back. Why would he do that? Well, I think that there are three insights about conversion that we get from this. And I just wanna share these three truths, these three insights. Number one, I think what Luke wants to do is he wants us to see and realize the inclusivity of the gospel. That's what I think he wants us to see, the inclusivity of the gospel. As I've already mentioned, you've got Lydia who is white collar, very successful, part of the elite in, in, in Philippi, but she's also religious. Then you've got a slave girl and a Roman jailer. And so it is breathtakingly beautiful how God works to seek and to save the lost. This is how he's going to build the church. This is the foundation of the church in Philippi. And these three couldn't be more different and disparate between each other. And so here's my question. When you think about the inclusivity of the gospel, what is the type of person who becomes a Christian? What's the prototype Christian? What kind of person gives their life to Christ? Well, there isn't one. There isn't a type. And in reality, what we see is that there's not a, there's not a prototype Christian. There's not a certain type of person that gives their life to Christ because the reality of these three is they were racially different. Lydia is from Asia. The jailer, the Philippian jailer is Roman European. And the slave girl, we don't even know what she was. She doesn't even know what she was. 
So these three are completely different racially. Uh, Not only that, but they're very different economically. Lydia's wealthy. The slave girl doesn't even own herself. And the jailer is probably middle class. They're very different, you know, from a religious standpoint. Lydia is very devoted to the worship of God. You know, she had some Jewish influence and exposure. Well, the slave girl was demon-possessed. And then the jailer was probably pantheistic. He's probably just pagan, pagan pantheist at best. And so what you're seeing here is you're seeing the radical inclusivity of the gospel of Jesus. And so, and so the gospel s- saves everyone who believes. And it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. You know, it's fascinating to me that Christianity is so different from all the other religions of the world in that Christianity has never been regionally bound. It's never been demographically bound to a certain place. You guys following what I'm saying by that? So, so when you think about it, Hinduism is bound to the, to the geographic location of India. Islam is bound to the Arab world, mostly the Middle East. Now there's been migration happening for sure, but for hundreds and hundreds of years, Islam has been centered right in the Middle East. Confucianism bound to China for thousands, thousands of years. And yet Christianity doesn't have a cultural or geographic tie. It started in the Middle East. It spread to the Mediterranean. It went to Africa. It went to Europe. It went to North America and South America and, and all over the world. By the way, do you know where the capital of Christianity is today? You guys know? We typically think it's the United States, but it's not. The capital of Christianity today is Africa. There are more Christians in Africa than Europe and North America even combined. And in five years, China will be the largest Christian nation in the world. Now, their government is not Christian. We know that. But there are uh, millions of Christians in China. So just think about that, church. Think about the uniqueness and the radical inclusivity of the gospel of Jesus. That is a mark of its truth right there. Now, let me come back to it. What's the prototype Christian? Well, the answer is this. It doesn't matter if you're an Ivy Leaguer or an Iowa farmer. It doesn't matter if you've got a summer home in Martha's Vineyard or you live in a UN-supplied hut outside of Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, black or white, liberal or conservative. It doesn't matter if you're young or old. You know, uh, if you come from a great family or a broken family, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. What an amazing, what an amazing reality that is. Number two, let me share this with you. I think what Luke is doing in this is not only showing us the inclusivity of the gospel, but I think he's showing us the sovereignty of God. He is showing us the sovereignty of God. Now, what I noticed about these three folks getting saved is they didn't really do anything to get saved. They just received the gift of God. That's what they did. And so, and so Jesus says, if you lift my name up, I will draw all men and women unto myself. Question, how is Lydia converted? Is she converted because the apostle Paul is such a amazing, captivating speaker? 
Is that how she's converted? No, verse 14 says that she's converted because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. She was listening, but God worked in her heart to open up her heart. And, and what God did is he saved her. How was the slave girl converted? Well, she, she was converted because God caused the demon to come out of her. It wasn't through the power of Paul. It was through the power of God that she was delivered from the demon. How was the jailer converted? Through an earthquake, through a natural phenomenon. Now, Paul and Silas, are, they're pretty good, but they're not that good, church. They can't cause an earthquake. And so... And so what this reminds us of is this, that Paul said, I plant the seed and Apollos waters it, but God makes it grow. And so what it means is, is that for the people in your life that are far from God, you know, your family members and friends or neighbors that are far from God, we need to be praying that God would open their heart to the gospel. That God would soften their heart to the gospel because you can, you can share your story with them. You can share the gospel with them. You can give them books, DVDs. You can invite them to a Christian movie. You can do all of that stuff. But unless the spirit of God is working in, in them to open their eyes, they'll never cross the line of faith. By the way, you also wanna pay attention in people's lives to two things. God uses times of tension and times of transition to create openness in the human heart. Times of tension and transition. So times of tension could be, I lost my job this week, or I've, I've got a, a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Those are tension producing times. People are open to the gospel in that. Uh, but God not only uses times of tension, but he uses times of transition in our lives. So a time of transition could very well be moving to a new place, uh, the birth of a first child. Get so many young couples right back into church. They're like, we got a young one, well, we got to get into church. You know, that's, I've heard that. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. And so that is the sovereignty of God working in salvation to create openness to the gospel. And here's the last one, and I want to finish with this. Not only do we see the inclusivity of the gospel really the sovereignty of God, but we see the reality of grace, the reality of grace. And you see this especially with the Philippian jailer. Now, let me, let me explain what I mean. The Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ because he sees two things in Paul and Silas. He, he knows that they are singing and worshiping God. He sees, he sees them joyful, and then he becomes a recipient of their grace. So those two things are very much at work. He, he, he hears their joy and singing just resounding through the, through the prison walls. But he's also, the jailer, a recipient of the grace that they extend to him. And so now from Paul's perspective, this wasn't where he wanted to be. He didn't want to be in prison. He didn't want to be shackled. He didn't want a bloody back. That's not what he wanted. He'd rather be at Disney World, okay? That's where he'd rather be, all right? But he's thinking in terms of, okay, God has a purpose for the pain that I'm in. And I just, I think the question is this, what if in the midst of the pain that you're going through, in the midst of the pain that I'm going through, what if we didn't say, God, what have I done wrong? Why am I in this situation? What if we did ask, Lord, whose life are you trying to influence 
through the pain that I'm going through right now. You guys follow what I'm saying there? See, it would have been real easy for Paul and Silas to get all down in the mouth and pour me about it, you know, because of the situation that they're in. But instead, they're praising God because they're confident that God somehow, some way is going to use this for his glory. And no doubt that's exactly what happened. Now, here's a wild thought. Maybe you and I should quit asking God to take away this week the very thing that we asked for last week. Maybe we should stop asking for that. All right, let me say it again because you're looking at me puzzled. All right, maybe we should stop asking for God to take away this week the very thing that we asked for last week. Now, what would we ask for last week? Well, we said, God, would you just use me? Use me to be a light. Use me to be a witness. And then what happens? Pain and adversity and trial comes into our life, just like the Apostle Paul and Silas. And what's our first thought? Lord, what am I doing wrong? When really God, what he wants to do is use us to be a witness in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our adversity. Now, let's, let's just make a direct application to 2020, all right? Um, we are all right now in a pandemic prison. Can I get an amen to that? Okay, raise your hand if you have pandemic fatigue. Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, yeah, we all do. We are so tired of this. So, so not only do we have uh, pandemic fatigue, but there's, you know, there's economic uncertainty. Then there's this whole mask wearing thing, social distancing. There's government overreach in other parts of our country. Uh, and then the election. I haven't even mentioned the election yet. You know, the election uh, is far from over um, in this, in this never-ending cycle of election. And, and not only that, but you've got relational issues and family issues and financial issues and even maybe some health issues this this is collectively our prison. This is where we're all at. Now, what can we do with our chains? What can we do about the prison that we're in? Let me suggest two things. Number one, we, need, we should see it coming because Jesus says in this world you will have trouble. But then secondly, what we need to do is we need to see it through. We need to see it through. And what I mean by that is this, we can make a choice, church, just like Paul and Silas did in the midst of this pandemic prison that we're in, to praise God, to pray and to sing of the grace of God. Do you know why we need to make that choice? Because the other prisoners are watching us. They're watching. And if they see the joy and the grace and the peace of the Holy Spirit in you, guess what? they're gonna come to you and say, what must I do to be saved? Because they see something qualitatively different in you. You're not grumbling, you're not complaining, you're not being self-focused, you're not doing all of that. You're just praising God because you know that these, these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, maybe you're listening today and you're asking the question, What must I do to be saved? And what I would say to you is this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Just like you believe that the chair you're sitting in right now is gonna hold you up, what you do is you put your whole weight on the cross of Christ, your past, your present, and your future, trusting him that he died in your place for you and that his life will fill you and change you and convert you through the power of the Holy Spirit 
and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the power of the word of God. And even, even when we fail to just explain the gospel articulately, Lord, I just thank you that your word is powerful to save anyway. And so we just ask that uh, in the middle of this pandemic prison that we're in, that we would, we would choose to praise you. Uh, in the middle of our chains, that we would just realize that the other prisoners are listening and watching us. And so God, I just pray that, that we would trust in your plan and we would trust in your work. And Lord, I pray that for those of us who are in the room or maybe watching online, that we've never really crossed the line of faith, that we would just realize there's no prototype Christian there's no type of person who comes to faith in Christ because the gospel is the power of God to seek and save the lost. And so, Lord, I, I pray that the Spirit of God will be working to bring salvation to human hearts within the sound of my voice today. That if we would repent of our sins and believe the gospel, we will be saved. And so we thank you for that. And I pray that those just really sensing the spirit of God in their heart today would take that very step for your glory. And so God, we give you praise. We give you glory. Thank you for the joy that we have. Thank you that this is not our home, uh, but Lord, we are ambassadors of the gospel. So thank you for your inclusivity. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for the reality of your goodness in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.